There have always been taboo subjects that no one wants to talk about in public. Free discourse of thought is something that our modern minds have become used to. Yet, there is one subject that no one wants to talk about. One thing that is responsible for more deaths every year than automobile accidents, war, and natural disasters combined. An easily preventable and often the last thing on anyone's mind. The questions that I have is this. Why is it not talked about? Why are they overwhelmingly male? And why are they not paying a closer attention? Why are we not paying closer attention? So today, Andrea and I are joined by Frank King, a former writer on The Tonight Show. Uh, he spent 20 years doing that. I, mean, I can't even get two minutes to you know, tell a bad joke and be kicked out. I don't even have that opportunity, but that's okay. A corporate comedian, syndicated humor columnist, and a podcast personality who was featured on CNN's Business as Usual, and a TEDx talker, which is pretty cool. Also, a suicide prevention and postvention uh, public speaker and trainer, uh, Mr. Frank King. How are you doing today? I am surfing the crazy. You surfing the crazy? Well, you're not supposed to be talking to me, not on the web. <laughs> <laughs> what are you surfing for over there? No, no, surfing. That's uh, people asking, "How you doing, man?" I'm surfing the crazy. Is surfing the well, crazy? you know what it is is. That I used to say that I fight depression, and that is not accurate. Uh, fight implies I could win, and I cannot win. I can lose and kill myself. I can tie, sort of an uneasy truce like North and South Korea. <laughs> uh, yeah, but there is Our no Jim win. Kong, Jim so. Kim, or whatever your name is now. <laughs> uh, Kim Jong-un. Jong, yeah, no, yeah. I, I just, I, I figured I, it's like the martial art Aikido, if you're familiar. Oh. Is that the yeah, Filipino stick fighting? No, it's a, it's actually the bone and joint manipulation. And rather than oppose oh, yeah. your opponent's attack, you blend with their energy, you know, and you spin them in a circle and then you reverse and take, after you take their balance. And the idea is not to oppose the force, but to blend with it. That's why I say I surf the crazy because I just catch <laughs> the wave knowing that my cycle is 72 hours for depression and you know within about three days uh, i'll be back to flying level so i think a lot of us who are somewhat into the entertainment business because even though you know i'm a fairly unknown person i do work in the entertainment business and i think it's just kind of par for the course for folks like us too because i do mike the mcdonald thing. mike mcdonald comedian Canada years ago said there are two kinds of comedians diagnosed and undiagnosed. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. So Andrea, you have a little bit of experience on the medical side of, of this. What, what's your, what, what's the medical portion of this? I was always curious because you mentioned to me earlier that doctors should be taken, you know, at your annual checkup, you should have, uh, the questionnaire. Yeah, it, it's it's strange because I mean I 
suffer from depression and taken medications for years and adjustments and had issues. But every year, wellness visit, hand me this piece of paper, fill this out and hand it to your doctor. I check it and then we go over it and then that's the end of it. But I kept thinking, do they not hand this to everybody? I've never gotten one in my life. And then when you said that you never had one, I was like, what do you mean? And I was like, um, I have never practiced as a nurse was just paired to a physician in a clinic. So I don't know how that works, but it's definitely opened up a lot of doors for me to want to ask questions, especially my profession when I can actually kind of like have more of a candid conversation with the physician. I kind of want to ask that question like, hey, why are we not asking this to every single person that comes in for a wellness visit? I mean, you know, for me, I worked in ICU. So if someone's having a crisis, usually they go to the ICU because it's one-on-one observation. And usually, I'll be honest, from what I can remember, before we came on, I kept thinking, how many male patients can I remember having? And there's a few, but most of them are women. And I kept thinking, well, standard of care is if you're having some problems and you're suicidal before they send you somewhere, you come to the ICU and you hang out with me until we have a place to go. It just makes me wonder, like, why is it not, why is it not discussed or addressed? I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. And it's kind so of. What's the insight that you have about that? I mean, this is something you you have more knowledge about this stuff than either one of us do. Uh, why is that? Do you know? Well, they are supposed to your physician every visit, whether it's for the well checkup or whatever. They're supposed to ask you two gateway questions. One, I think is something about taking less interest in social activities. And two is, have you felt hopeless in the last two weeks? And if you say yes to either one of those, then they're supposed to ask the seven follow-up questions. The, the, the questionnaire she's talking about, Andrew's talking about, but my physician never did. He never, we never, he never even mentioned depression until I did one day. I said, look, I need some antidepressants. And he said, why? And I said, because I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. <laughs> Jeez. And and that's true, actually. I yeah. spoiled the remarks no, for the audience. Yeah. I did not I didn't pull the trigger. Obviously. Um, but the he's supposed to ask that every time. And but here's the thing. He's busy. He's working in a large practice. Yeah. They got a, a waiting room full of people. They're only allowed X number of minutes per visit. And I would guess that he really doesn't want to know the answer if it happens to be yes i'm depressed and suicidal yeah so yeah it's just too bad it should be asked every i've never visit. never been asked those questions ever but um, maybe when i was admitted to the emergency room once or twice well honestly when you're admit like i would do with these admit questions on patients and i'll be honest and it's I'll just follow my sword when I say this. You've got like X amount of patients, no excuse. You're just trying to get this person vetted so you could take care of God down the hole that's having problems. You rattle off those questions and you don't really stop and give the patient time to think. And I know the emergency room is, especially probably during COVID, they probably just zip through a lot of that. And oh, sometimes yeah. nurses honestly forgot to ask them. I'm just being honest here. It's not right, but it's just kind of what happens. But it just, I know I'm in my job, I'm just, I help physicians in their documentation. It's a long whole other story, but basically I'm learning about ambulatory type stuff and the physician's clinics and things like that. And I'm looking at physician schedules to look at the documentation and I'm like 15 minutes for a checkup. Yeah. You get 15 minutes. That's not enough. That's not 
like what in 30 minutes for someone who's a new patient i'm like what are you herding these people in like cattle i mean they don't really and i had 175 to 275 dollars a pop with your copay you pay 25 bucks but yet it's actually 200 to 300 dollars for your visit nobody sees that portion of it either which is a whole nother podcast about a whole other thing but you know it's, whatever i just was totally baffled by that because i was kind of like in a society where we are now, where we're always talking about people's mental health and it's more talked about in the schools because my kids are more aware of it. They're teenagers, so that's probably the population where they want to bring it up the most. <laughs> but it's like, why They're are... are always depressed, teenagers. Why, yeah, it's a whole other podcast on that one. <laughs> but it's like, why are we not... Why are we not talking to this with men? I don't... I'm so mind blown by this. Well, we were all John Wayne for a very long time. You know, I mean, go ahead. Oh, yes. Well, a couple of things. One, not only do they have 15 minutes, Andrea, they they have something now called, you know, this electronic medical records, EMR. Yep. And so used to when you went to see the physician, he was sitting across from you on a little stool and staring you in the face, watching for your reactions. And, you know. Nowadays, his face is in the computer on the computer screen because he's entering your information because he's required by law to keep electronic medical records. And so not only is is the appointment shorter, he's not really paying attention. Like you said, he's just asking the questions and inputting them, not watching your face for micro expressions and see if you're lying, you know. It's (laughs) well, and then. Yeah. Men, that's why we wrote a four book series on men's mental health because eight out of 10 people who die by suicide at this moment are men mm-hmm. and generally 45, 54 years old, mostly Caucasian. And in it's in part because they call it toxic masculinity, but I'm from the South. I grew up there. I think the term big boys don't cry is far more. Yeah. Um, illustrative. Yeah, that's what we called it when I was a kid. Yeah. And so men don't reach out for help. I'm from Arkansas and grew up with my half of my time being spent in Stuttgart, Arkansas, which is the Delta, basically. So I totally understand what you're saying. And the, uh, you know, men don't tend to reach out for help. That's true. Let me give you an example. Construction has the highest rate of suicide of any occupation. And people go, why is that? Well, mostly because it's heavily male. It's mostly men. And it's tough guys. Yeah. Or supposed to be tough guys anyway. Yeah. And they they believe they're expected to be tough. Right. And every year in in construction, roughly 1,000 people die by accident. Roughly 5,000 die by suicide. You are five times more likely to to jump off the building than you are to fall off it. It's crazy. Yep. (laughs) Wow. It's a living. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, but it it's, you know, it drives me crazy because, you know, you can still be a man and admit you're having failures. You can still be a man and have weakness because just because you're weak for the moment doesn't mean you're weak all the time. And it's, it's weird. It, guy like me, when you get to know me, you realize that I'm probably one of the manliest men you ever met, but I will sit here and talk to you about my feelings at a drop of a hat. 
True. And I'll be honest about my feelings. Most uh, men aren't. Yeah. And I don't yes. understand why men can't do that. I don't know. I don't. I think it's lack of confidence because I'm I ha, I I'm not scared of anything. It doesn't make a shit to me what's going on. I, I made a vow a long time ago that I'm going to do everything once within reason. And if I like it, I'm going to do it again. You know? Well, it's cultural. It's, you know, it, men were raised that way. Most men were raised that way. It's, it's like it's the same reason that there are certain groups, cultural groups, where they have a high rate of suicide. Of yeah. African-American, Native American, Alaska-American. Uh Japanese, Jap- really? Japanese. They're, uh, I mean, they're in Japan. There's a suicide forest. They had like ten thousand oh, yeah. people a year going there to kill themselves. Yes, and it's in part because they, in these groups, they don't normally come out as depressed or mentally ill to their friends and family. It's just not part of the culture. Right. It's, I've got a friend who is a comedian. I helped her start her comedy career. Helped her start her speaking career helped to get a TEDx and she's ha- she lives with schizoaffective disorder she's had three suicide attempts and that's what she did her TEDx on and her, her mother was furious you know in our community her mom said we don't talk about that and my friend goes that's exactly why I did it yeah because I cannot be the only one so exactly so it's like I told my my co-worker the other day when we were talking about our our business in you know he says, the biggest problem we have is communication. And I said, yes, it's the biggest problem we have is communication. But you know what? We just don't talk about that. <laughs> Nicely done. So I got a question for you. I'm a single mother and I have okay. two boys and two girls. And my oldest son has lived predominantly a lot with his father in Texas because that's where he wanted to be. And he would I would always kind of encourage him to be honest and talk about the way he feels and kind of things like that because his father is kind of um, gruff and tough and, you know, Not that really. kind of thing. Well, he I mean, thinks he's he is. reading what to the little kid? Whatever. Well, that's, but anyways, <laughs> I, I very much wanted my son to be able to be open with how he felt and not be afraid because growing up I was not allowed to ever talk about anything we weren't allowed to cry if you're a girl you have to suck it up you're a boy you have to suck it up this is how it is so I didn't want him to be that way so what advice would you give to people in my situation as a single mom with boys especially because they're having to like be a mom and a dad and how would you help them talk about mental health I think having this conversation with him is not what you know age appropriate of course yeah that that oftentimes men and boys don't talk about the way they feel because they you know if, if they're feeling emotional it's, it's it's sort of you know bred into you that you don't show that you big boys don't cry but that's not true son yeah uh it's it's healthy it's you know there are times when you you know it's it's just part of li- growing up and living is is cry don't you this it's not going to happen in one conversation i think it has to happen over time you know don't be ashamed um if you feel if you're upset about something let me know i'm not going to judge uh there's no you know um but yeah it 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 has to be over time and have to open up the communication it's kind of like having to talk about sex you know you don't start off with um you know which finger do they you start out with just the basics of birds and the bees, and then as they get older, you you know 
you buy them the condoms. <laughs> well, her her dad bought her at eighteen. What a whole jar full. Yeah, a whole jar full of condoms. He just basically told he me he did. goes. He said, I don't want to be a grandpa, not now, but I'm not going to tell you no. So here you go. <laughs> and so, I mean. My I, dad just said, don't get caught. <laughs> so along what you were just <laughs> talking about a minute ago, you know, I've noticed when I, I have teenagers and um, both of them go obviously to the pediatrician once a year and whatnot, and they hand them that questionnaire too. And I've always been told, I have a daughter and a son that both of this get these questionnaires. And I said, okay, fill it out honestly. And so when we get one of the questionnaires and she was completely honest, it kind of opened the door to her mental health treatment. But I think, oh, yeah, it, it did. And, you know, I try to be very much open to that, especially as a nurse, to be kind of attuned to that. Um, my father suffered from depression for a long period of time. So your conversation of not being able to talk about it he really wasn't able to talk about it or to even seek treatment until God, I was like a senior in high school. So I want to think well, that he had a special circumstance for being depressed too, though. Yes. But yeah, my father was gay. He came out later in life. So he married, had kids Whoa. and then had to come out as a gay man. Finally, after the kids got old enough where he didn't have to be home anymore. So yeah, it was, I could understand his depression. So seeing him go through that is very much made me like, it's okay to talk about your feelings. It's okay to be accepting who you are. I'm going to love you regardless kind of conversation. But I would like to think that we've come a long way in mental health because well, now it's like, let me, let's talk about our trigger warnings. Let's talk about what upsets you. Yeah, let's but as a man, you can't be that. Seriously, as, as, as a full bore, manly, heterosexual, can't think of it being any other way type guy. You can't, you ha it's always about being strong being uh the best and that's just innate in the head you know um, and again encouraged uh, culturally to yeah but it's also it. by, by the way it's I don't, dna yes but it's it's my mother's generation never talked about it and so i didn't tell anybody i was depressed and suicidal until i told the world in my first TEDx, I came out of the mental health closet on stage at age 52 at my TEDx. Nobody knew that I was living with depression and, and chronic suicidal ideation. And most people, many people who are mentally ill are great actors. I have a Screen yeah. Actors Guild card for a reason. I'm, I'm a good actor. So, uh, and I probably wouldn't have come out then if it weren't for, I've been a comedian for two and a half decades at that point, and I wanted to be a speaker, and I had to convince the world I could do something serious. <laughs> I thought, well, I'll show them. I'll, I'll do something deadly serious. I'll do a TEDx on suicide. Yeah. By the way, I, I looked I looked up TEDx's on suicide on the big TED site, thinking there must be dozens, and there were three, just three, yeah. TEDx talks on suicide. Then it hit me. Well, uh, duh, if you're really good at suicide, chances are you're not going to be recording a TED talk. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, the winners in that field are just, they, they, you know, okay. You really don't want to be a winner. You no, like, you don't want to win yeah, that. Frank, you don't no. want to win the game. Frank, do you feel like a failure? Yes, I failed at suicide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a hard subject to, to make fun of, but at the same time, it's what? like if you're open enough and you've, and, you, and you've come to terms with your own demons, then yes, you can be silly about something like this because... It is what it is, you know, I mean, you get, we get, people throw daggers at us every day and some daggers hurt more than others. 
But what I've found is keeping it, 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 they all don't actually hurt more than others. They're all the same depth. We just let the wounds fester longer by picking at them with our mind and our emotions. Or we don't treat them and they get infected and it gets worse. The Correct. reason I get the reason I'm often hired over, say, a clinician to talk about suicide prevention, because we're both given the basically the same advice. Yeah. Is that I'm the mental health comedian. And the fact that I can not tell jokes, but tell funny personal stories. Which and, are better and than in jokes. comedy by Yeah. Well, yes. And but in comedy, the rule is you can make fun of any group to which you belong. So I can <laughs> make fun of people. You know, yeah. So So I can't make fun of me. anybody because I'm like an outcast galore jeez well you can make fun of all your other misfit friends um (laughs) well you gotta have friends first i'm just saying but i wonder if probably some of this might have to do with just stigma because i'm sitting here thinking like as in healthcare i've worked in the emergency room i've worked in the icu i've done various things over my career and i've always heard like tons of other nurses say oh if they really meant to do it they would do it right and i'm like what that is so wrong i was like no 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 we're taught better than this in school this is a cry for help i think people sometimes get so at least in my profession get so immune to taking care of those people that we just think that it's just another person that's acting out, and that's that's not really a fair way to be. I mean, I've kind of been guilty of that, I'll be honest. Well, we're just sure. human. We are just human, true. But it's like, as my profession, we should do better at that. We really well, let me, let me give you guys some good news. I like to put, shove in a little good news when I can. The 8 out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They cannot make up their mind. And nine out of 10 actually give hints in the last seven days leading up to an attempt, which means the vast majority of people can be saved, want to be saved. Yeah. If you know what to look and listen for. And that's what I teach signs and symptoms, what to say, what not say, what to do, what not do, and how to find resources. So we can solve this problem. But as you said, Andrew, there's a lot of stigma attached. And, and by the way, I was in California, I was in a comedy show. And uh, at a convention, so I'm sitting with nine people at dinner at the ten top, you know, table. And they asked me if I did anything else. And I said, yes. I told them what I did, told them what I was living with mentally. And I'm on my way to the bathroom, and there's a guy headed that way with me. And he stops me, and he goes, Frank, I also have chronic suicidal ideation. He said, and he's 69 years old. Mm. He says, but I've never told anybody that, including my therapist. And I know why, because in California, if you tell your therapist you're having thoughts of suicide and you have a plan, you're going to spend three days uh, in an all expenses paid mental health facility (sighs) with no shoestrings or belt involuntarily. And all you get to eat is jello and you don't even get the straw. And juicy fruit. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> thanks for getting that. Uh, so my question to you is, is I'll just be honest here. I, my daughter, um, tried, um, by taking oh. ty- Tylenol and I'm a nurse and I'm her mother and I didn't see any of it. And that's a huge guilt that I've got to live with because I feel like I should have caught on to that. I am not just, I'm not the dumb mom, I guess in that situation maybe, but I'm a nurse. I should have caught this, but I didn't. But luckily for her, she told me and we took her straight to the hospital. She wasn't really trying though. Well, I don't know. She took enough Tylenol, it damaged her liver for permanently. Yeah. But 
she's gotten treatment and she's taken her medication and I keep her in therapy and I keep I keep on her and stuff like that and that kind of thing. And there is nothing wrong for anyone who's listening. There is nothing wrong with someone who feels emotionally distraught and has to and feels like that's the only thing they can do. There's nothing wrong with that person other than that. They need someone to help them and come and talk to them and listen. Listening is the biggest key, I think, for most people who feel terrible in in, in that way. Just listen. I felt I was doing that though, but but I don't know what advice. Well, who the person is listening? I mean, who cares? What signs would you tell? Because I mean, we're taught like they give things away, they change in personality, they you know little things like that. And I'm sitting there going back. I didn't see any of that. Well, as a kid, you got nothing. (laughs) Just saying. Yeah, and sometimes parents confuse that with just being a teenager. He's moody. Um, my th- three three top symptoms I found are they eat too much as they can't eat, they sleep too much as they can't sleep, uh, they let their personal hygiene go. Yeah, that's a big one too. They have that's trouble true. getting out, they get they trouble getting out of bed in the morning, but seem to rally in the afternoon like almost a different person. And but you know these are not always these are not the only signs, nor are you know it's this sort of well, yeah, list. I got I, I I do all but one of those every day. And I'm not suicidal. So I wonder, do yeah, men and, men have different symptoms than say women? Uh, no, but men tend to three times as many women attempt suicide as men. Men tend to complete because they use a firearm. Your daughter chose Tylenol, which is something you can come back from. You can call somebody yeah. and go, look, I took too many pills. Yeah. You can call 911. You cut yourself, you're bleeding, but you're not going to bleed out right away. So you can call 911. Men tend to, although Naomi Judd shot herself, which is kind of unusual. Yeah. But and here's, here's something people said to me after she killed herself. She had everything. Why would she want to die? And my stock answer is, chances are, she did not want to die. She simply wanted to end the pain. Yep. I didn't want to die when I came so close. I just wanted to end the pain. Well, for me, when I was about 11... Um, I felt that everybody hated me. I couldn't trust anybody. There was nothing on this planet for me. I'm a very different kind of person. I've always been my own. I, I didn't beat to the rhythm of my own drum. I went out and like beat people up and took their drums and then turned them <laughs> into my drum and then find then found my own rhythm. You have the cannonballs. Yeah, I'm the kind of guy that likes to hear the cannonballs roar. But um, at 11, I got hot water, a straight razor. And I'm at 11, of all things. And I'm sitting there thinking about it, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be older soon. And... It's only going to be five or six years. Most people live to be 80. And I just thought about it logically for a second. I've only had to deal with this situation that I'm in, these people I'm dealing with, for about another 10 years. And I can go do something else. And then I can go to the beach. I can go to Hawaii. I can party. Or I can have a family. Or I can drive a car. And I thought to myself, this is stupid. I'm not going to kill myself. I just got to put up with it for a little while, and then it'll go away, and everything will change. I'll do what I want. Well, and- Paul, I had a similar thought in reverse recently. Right. 
I was on the trail walking the dogs. I walked the dogs every morning. And I was thinking to myself, I was thinking about the whole, you know, I have chronic, I have chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me, it's always an option on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. My car broke down three years ago. I had a couple of thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. Because it's a coping mechanism. It's yeah. a stress reliever. Anyway, anyway, I'm walking down the trail. And I'm thinking, you know, thinking about what I do for a living and talking about suicide. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. Sort of like you did. I'm 65 years old. I mean, <laughs> what are we talking here? <laughs> 10, 15, 20. Why rush it? Why not just? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let 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 it. I mean, it's eventually we'll take care of itself. Might as yeah. well just have a good time while it's left and go on. That's how I feel about yeah, it. Yeah, when, <laughs> yeah, when I had my first suicidal thoughts in my twenties, you know, I'm looking at this stretch to yeah. whatever the average age was back then, seventy two. But like, now you can get strippers, hookers, cocaine, blow, whatever you want, and it'd be fine. <laughs> I, I'm teasing. I was on a cruise ship. <laughs> no, I was on a cruise ship with a guy who was eighty something. He's eighty years old. I'm watching him eat breakfast. We had breakfast together. And he's eating yogurt and granola and something else healthy. And I go, dude, you're 84. Why are you eating such a healthy breakfast? I mean, come on. We're, yeah. getting, let, we're, getting, we're rolling into the uh, Dominican Republic. Let's get off the boat, get some hookers, some heroin. I mean, <laughs> even, if you, even if you got AIDS, it's like a 10-year yeah, incubation period. Whatever, you're not, you know. you're, you're going to be long gone by the time. it <laughs> be 95. With, you know, it's like, eh, it's over. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did read in some statistics here that 85 and older is um, – they're a high rate for suicide as well. And I wonder if a lot of that has to do with illness and coming to terms with the end of life. Probably. Yes, they have a high rate, but, but boomers rate is increasing. And they think it's because baby boomers, when they were young, 18, whatever, 20, they were going to change the world. And they did. They helped end the Vietnam War and they thought they'd go on to do greater things, you know, changing the world some more. And they look back and, you know, they went to work at some corporation and they they didn't change anything. But I'll tell you who the loneliest people on the planet are, in the United States anyway, teenage girls. Yeah. Because And one of the reasons they believe is they're spending 40% less time face-to-face with their peers, like hanging out at the mall, than they did 10 years ago. They got their faces in their iPhone in their bedrooms. And so there's that disconnect. We're the most connected and most disconnected generation yeah. on you know in, in history because of the mm-hmm. social media uh something for your daughter by the way mm-hmm. you're asking for suggestions here's what i suggest you do it at random points the suicidality is a three-legged stool one leg is you isolate yourself you move or you you end friendships and you 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 know you pull out of uh anything social two is you have crossed the barrier where you have realize you can end your life because babies are born with an amazing will to survive, but you've crossed that barrier. You can kill yourself. Yeah. The third one is, and this is the one that I recommend you, you drop into conversation with your daughter every now and then is something called burdensomeness, burdensomeness. Many people who are suicidal feel the world would be better off without them. So, on the outside looking in, it's a selfish act, but on the inside looking out, it's almost selfless. And they firmly believe that their parents and, and so forth would be better off without them. So my advice to you, when rather than say something like a child, you've got so much to live for, which in my mind is not going to have any impact, say to her, you know, honey, I, I imagine 
you know, it crosses your mind every now and then that we would somehow be better off without you. And that is in no way true. We would not in any way be better off without you. Yeah. That's a really good point. Cause I mean, I've noticed, especially with like social media, I mean, we kind of grew up not having to deal with that. And now everybody's putting filters on, making themselves look thin and all this other stuff. And I told them the other day, I was like, have you ever stopped to think what someone really looks like without the filter? They look just like you. <laughs> you well, know? it's a highlight reel. It's a, it's yeah. a highlight reel. You know, and I'm kind uh, of like, I just don't under, I can't fathom the amount of pressure that it's got to be for a teenager. And you have we, no idea how hard it is for me to hold back on my smart ass comments. I know point. it is. I live in a small town. <laughs> well, her graduating class is maybe 25 people. Oh, so, Maybe may yeah. a little bit more than that. But well, it's both your- of us went. We I graduated with six hundred and eighty people. I had five hundred. Mm-hmm. She had five hundred something people. So for us, it's, it's kind of hard for us to deal. And, and and none of these children are mine. Um, I don't have any kids at all. Um, by choice, it wasn't that I don't. The parts don't work. It's that the parts I didn't want them to work. So <laughs> put it that way. Um. So just just to kind of see where you know where we're coming from a little bit. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, I mean, it's just crazy because I'm like, Emmy, you know, you don't have to necessarily like get along with everybody in your class. It's like you can't blend in or you have to get along. And there's so much pressure of people being in each other's business and filters. And I just I feel it breaks my heart because I'm thinking, man, if things would just be so much simpler, where not your whole entire life has to be put on Facebook and for everyone's opinion. Yeah. It almost might make things 10 times easier on people if they weren't so worried about what well, everyone's what doing. Try to tell you about being an entertainer too, is that you can't let other people's opinion hit you. Uh, and you should know something about this, I guess. Um, oh yeah. It, yeah. That, go ahead. Every time I, every time I, all the times when I speak, that I'm at a conference and they pass out evaluation forms. And then the meeting planner says to me, well, we'll send you the evaluation forms. And I say, don't, I don't want them. Yeah. I don't want them. Yeah. I, I don't want, you know, I don't want, I, I, I mean, I know it's just going to upset me. <laughs> <laughs> don't hey, it's the press, press. Well, it's like, yeah. you know, we were talking about with the podcast, like people's like comments. I was like, I don't know what they want to say. I don't want to know what they say. I don't care. No. I mean, I do care people's I opinions, but I don't want the negativity. And I'm trying yeah. to teach that to myself and also to teach yeah. it to my kids. It's like, just who cares what other people think? You be your, you be you. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem there is that is an adult answer to a teenage question. Exactly. I agree. Because teenagers want nothing more in my estimation than to fit in. It's well, adults, weird. Adults was I too. never a teenage? Was I never a child? Because I never cared if I fit in or not. I think everyone does. I didn't know. I never cared. I didn't give two shits if I fit in or not. I say people will say you should do this. I said, what the fuck I want, and that's my mantra. You know that. But I it's do what like, is that go back to men and suicide? They want so much to be this idyllic, yes, person okay. of what they feel like that they were brought up to think they had to be and when yeah. they're not meeting that expectation they yeah. feel like the only way that they can end it is to hurt is to i guess essentially suicide it's like why yes, it, do we put that pressure on people well i i think it's changing with the newer generations in terms of the 
you know, the male female role models and, and those, those expectations, thankfully, like my, my mother's generation never talked about it. Right. My, my, and my sister's generation were open about it all. And so therefore the nieces and nephews are, are very open about their emotions. And if they're struggling with the mental challenge, they don't hide it. There's no stigma in the family. So yeah, I think over generations, hopefully it will improve. The thing about I'm sure you had this experience. I'm 65, graduated high school in 75. Back then, the bully was very up close and personal. Yeah. His name was George Ragland. He had a locker next to me in, in junior high school. And and he would hit me in the shoulder or whatever it was. But when I left the school, I left the bully behind. Now kids carry the bully behind, the bully home in their pocket. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And... I, I did something one time in the last couple of years that got the trolls to come after me for something they thought that I had done. And it was vicious. It was, I mean, I had death threats. I had changed my phone number, shut down oh three social media gosh. accounts. Good grief. Yeah. And I said to, I said to my wife, you know, I never really understood the whole uh, cyber bully thing until now. I said, and these people I'll never meet. But if those people who are coming after me and being that vicious were my classmates, I would be talking to my mother about, look, honey, Frank needs to be homeschooled because if he's not, shortly he's going to kill somebody. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? I oh, wonder I, if that's what's with this whole school shooting thing is because I remember my kids coming to me I when think they started Columbine school. might have been, but I don't know if the new ones are that the way. The bully that get you know, the kid that got bullied all the time just decided that instead of it, you know, hurting himself, he's going to hurt others. But I I'll... The Columbine kids were kind of, they had that something to it. They had some of that to it. And, but I don't know, some of these guys are just, they, I, who knows? But well, like, I think it began with Columbine. Didn't be, actually began in Oregon in, in Springfield. Yeah. Uh, and somebody told me the year that it happened. And I think in the beginning, it was a lot of going after the bully and all their friends. Yeah. But, but then you see somebody who does that and you see the kind of attention they get in the media and social media. And so that's why they live, some of these people live stream this mm -hmm. and they live stream, you know, then they, they, they post before live, they live stream before. And it, so to be a star, I guess, to be a social media star. Yes. Uh, I, my last TEDx talk was called uh, digital media addiction, smartphones, smartphones, social media, stress, anxiety, and suicide. The high schoolers now, Report self-report. Last study I saw, forty percent of them are have anxiety, and sixty percent of college students, and that is twice the rate it was ten years ago. And what's changed, I believe, is in two thousand twelve, only fifty percent of the people in the United States owned a smartphone. That's when we crossed that, you know, into the plus fifty, you know, fifty plus. Now it's around eighty-four percent. And if you track the graph of self-reported depression thoughts of suicide among teenagers and you place it over top of a graph of the growth in smartphone ownership the two lines are almost parallel you know going up to the right hand corner well it's easier so, to be honest with an app on your phone that you carry around and you you trust the phone to do at least a little bit more than you would just talking to a random person on the street so it may be part of that is that they're just used to it and they can be open with it. And so they can self-report before if you had a self-report, like 
when we were kids and when you were kids, yeah. you had to do it in front of somebody. And that's it could be very humiliating. That's true. Because, I mean, a lot of things that they would like, like for me as a nurse, they would tell me stuff, but they wouldn't tell the doctor. Yeah. And I'm always kind of like, I never really understood that. And it's maybe because, you know, they got, I was around. Because you're a nice, pretty girl. (laughs) I'm going to talk to this nice, pretty girl right here. You know. That's what I'm going to do. Hey, what's up, baby? (laughs) Oh, no, I feel fine today. And they go and tell the doctor, I feel fine. Tell the nurse, I feel like shit. So it's like, (laughs) but you have a point there. Like people are more comfortable self-reporting to a box that they stare at than somebody's eyeballs. And maybe a lot of that has to do with... Men, too, not wanting to talk about how they feel in front of their physician or saying, hey, 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 stop, stop, stop. I need to talk to you about something, you know, that kind of thing. And teenagers are more forthcoming in text rather than on on the phone. So the Suicide Prevention Lifeline folks established a suicide prevention text line. You text the word HELP to 741-741, and there'll be somebody on the other end, roughly your age, texting back because they'd much rather text their feelings they're much more open about their feelings in a text than they are talking to somebody on the phone I mean, that makes sense i mean honestly i would rather text somebody than actually talk and that's just mainly because it's just easier and faster and convenient and right and you don't have to you don't have to throw out because we as humans we listen to the vocals so we listen to that i can tell when someone is upset or happy or sad or or confused or frightened by the tone of their voice and how their cadence is and things like that. I spent 20 years selling insurance to people. I, I did employer benefits. So I, was, I had to see 15 people a day. So I had 10 minutes to meet with these people and sell them insurance. If I didn't sell them insurance, I didn't eat. So I had to learn how to listen and 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 guess what these people are doing to my best ability and otherwise I couldn't sell them and well not just listen Paul and this is this is what this is something I fear is that the I think what we're losing the ability to do if you're not making eye contact if you're not watching another person's face for micro expressions and you're not listening this is the problem with texting or email you know as you said not listening to the tone of their voice that all these cues you're missing. I saw somebody said the day will come when this, the millennials and certainly the Gen Z, when somebody they know has a tragedy, they won't know what to say or what facial expression to make, right. but they will know just exactly which emoji to use. <laughs> you know, that's a really good point because there are certain things that I've noticed within my own kids that they don't know how to like express express or say the right thing and now that you bring that up i mean that's a really really good point because i didn't want to give them cell phones until but we lived out here i was a single mom need to make sure they got in the door okay from school it was just easier and it's just like morphed into something where if a kid doesn't have a cell phone at age nine then he's like teased he or she is teased yeah and i just crazy let's go let's go to the next generation if a millennial woman has a baby, when the, the the first number of months, it's very important that the mother and child are constantly making eye contact, that the child can see. Yeah. The child can't really see that well in the beginning, but they can look at the mother's face. And what they're doing is they're looking at their mother's face is they're picking up 
what her face looks like when she's sad, what her face looks like when she's angry. And so if the mother has her face turned away and staring into a smartphone, she's denying that neural connection with the child's eyes. Yeah, it that can be a very dangerous being. thing going on. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, I'll have to yep. do could, some research on well, that. Well, it's just like I said in the last podcast uh, about uh, the when we talked about science and astronomy. And uh, the doctors have found that in premature babies, that the ones that are touched by the nurses every few minutes or every hour or so develop stronger, better than the ones who aren't touched and are in a cage. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a white paper. I gotta find that white paper so people I could people can I could prove okay. it. But it, it does exist. What I don't understand is when you have a child, you don't have time to do much else besides feed the child. Yeah. Bathe the child, change the child's diaper, feed it, and sleep when it does. I don't know how you even have time to pick up your cell phone much less <laughs> take a bath. I We're don't bad. understand this problem. Well, I don't understand. I, I'm just like, how do you have time to pick well, up your phone? You're, remember, you and I are different kind of people. Yeah, we are. We we are very attentive. We're hyper, um, hyper uh, empathy. We have hyper empathy. It's probably a true statement. Yeah. So because of that, it's hard for us to deal with people who have no empathy, and we don't understand those kind of things. Because I don't know when my kids were born, I I, yeah. I was I didn't. They were constantly with me. Like I didn't go to the bathroom or take a bath by myself for like. <laughs> I have no for, kids, so I for don't like know. at least the first six months, four months or something, because they're crying, they're constantly, they need you. You're your mom. You're right there. So I don't know. I'm just like, get off of the phone and pay attention to your kid. <laughs> yeah, because because that eye contact between mother and child actually develops neural pathways mm-hmm. that will eventually be used by that child as an adolescent and an adult in terms of. You know, reading other people's faces and understanding, you know, uh, the uh, but not everybody, <laughs> not everybody, <laughs> not everybody, even my even my generation, not everybody can do that. Not everybody. Yeah. I'm walking with a guy one day and a woman walked past us and he goes, she smiled at us. And I go, yeah, but did you notice her smile never reached her eyes? And he goes, yeah. what? What do you mean her smile never reached her eyes? I go, you didn't see that? He goes, no, I didn't. But she smiled, but you could tell because I was I saw her smile, looked into her eyes, and it never got there. Mm-hmm. It was perfunctory. It was just smiling, you know. She's being polite. polite to smile. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's being polite. Yeah. It never so there are, are people who can't pick up on those micro expressions. I, I had to learn all of that. I mean Dr. Paul Eichmann is one of the uh, premier researchers in micro expressions, and that that guy uh, he, he's got every micro expression that anyone's ever made mapped. And he's found that it doesn't matter whether you're an American or uh, living in the deep jungle and never even seen a fork before that your micro expressions are exactly the same. It's yeah. I think he's the one they based the show, the mentalist on. Uh, no, well, the mentalist, the real show that they based on him was, um, oh my gosh, lie to me, you lie to me, lie to me, lie to me. I because can't watch that guy's it. name was Paul Eichmann. Yeah, I can't watch that show because you'll start pointing yeah. stuff out, and I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't do anything, man. <laughs> 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 watch what I do, but I well, think- it's um, 
Go ahead. If I could take, if I if I could go back in time and said you can't do comedy, I would have gone and studied with I I would have studied with Eichmann, and gone to work, you know, in that in like that guy does reading people's expressions because part of my mental illness I think is and if you have mental illness you're much more I believe empathetic you're much more aware of other people's feelings and so forth around you and uh, I I'm fascinated. One of the things I do for a hobby is I try to guess where people are from. And it's all in observation. It's mm-hmm. a friend of mine who's a mentalist said, Frank, that's called a cold read. And apparently you've been practicing this for years. I have. I came, I was coming across coming across the border from Canada, stopped at US border, you know, the border patrol, you know, show them a passport, whatever. Yeah. And um, I just, out of habit, I'm, I look the, the guy up and down, a black guy. His name is Tom, last name is Thomas on his badge. He said a couple of words, and so I said to him, uh, Officer Thomas, you're from Georgia. And he freezes, and he looks at me, and he goes, I am, but how could you possibly know that? <laughs> and I said, you're asking the wrong question. He said, what's the right question? Why don't you have someone like me at every border crossing in this country watching and listening to people come and go? Yeah. And they they do that in Israel. They have people who watch and listen to the people in line yeah. for immigration coming and going. And that's that because they're watch they have people who are trained to watch for signs and you know, whatever. Well, it's like whenever you're getting mouth. that spam message that says important, this is going to expire or car insur- a car warranty yeah, or something like and, that. And you're like, <laughs> whatever. And every now and again I'll engage them because I like screwing with people. It's fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll engage them and I'll know exactly where they're from. And I'm like, you're not in there. Or, or it's like when I was dating, I, I, I did 52, 50, was it 51 or 52? 51 first dates. 51, yeah. Since after I got divorced, I was divorced not quite a year and I went on 51 first dates because I was bound and determined to find somebody that I actually, you know, actually connect with. And I got to make up for lost time. I spent 20 years, you know, living with, Oh, God. Anyway, so <laughs> I don't even remember what my point was now. I got so sidetracked right now. Oh, my God. You had to learn how to read people yeah, pretty quickly. Um, yeah. In those, in those first dates. It's first dates. I always tell everybody it's like a job interview. Yeah, it is. It's a job interview. I mean, I yeah. wrote a list. I had a list of 10 things. And if you violated more than three, I wasn't going to go out with you again. Oh, hey. You got to have standards, man. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. One, she's breathing. One, she's breathing. Two, she's got a blood pressure. Three, she's got a pulse. Um, four, not a, not a dude. Not a dude. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on how good looking she is. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know what? When I, when I went out with my current wife, when I went out with my current wife for the first time, I met her in San Diego in a tremendously gay neighborhood with a lot of female impersonator bars yeah she was extremely muscular wearing did a ton you pull of makeup, the crocodile dundee i think which he, is remember the crocodile dundee that he had that woman he was he checking you remember the movie oh no i actually um <laughs> oh yes <laughs> I, I said to my, i said to my roommate i said to my roommate look i'm gonna go i'm on this date with this woman here's her address um, I think there's a 50-50 chance she's got outdoor and on indoor plumbing. <laughs> and so 
if I don't call, if I don't call you by midnight, send the cops to this address because I'm playing a crying game and losing. And <laughs> oh my gosh! Much more muscular than I was. Yeah, <laughs> you should. So I mean, at eleven forty-five at her place, I said, I "Could I borrow your phone?" And she goes, "Sure." And I, right in front of her, I called my roommate and I, I said simply, "It's a girl." <laughs> oh uh, my god! She's gonna shoot you, man. <laughs> no, I told the story, and you know what? She is so sweet and so funny and so smart. I, I would have married her if she had a penis. It's just plump. See, that's what I you said. Know, it's just, just it's like I wasn't wrong. Depends on how pretty she is. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, she was flat. She was flat, and you know, blowjobs are blowjobs. Well, she was true. flat, gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> We're just devolving this conversation to its lowest common denominator yes. at this point. Sorry, guys. No, it's, it's uh, okay. No, it's exactly what no. we do. It's, it's, that's we just kind of talk, and it morphs into stuff. But that's because I'm an asshole. No. I can't help it. I'm not an well, ass. No, I'm not. An, I'm not an asshole. I'm an ass. Not an asshole. There's a difference. Yeah, there's a difference. That is correct. <laughs> See, yeah. I'm not oh. the only one. Well, was, you know, it's like down south. Uh, the expression is he showed his ass. It's not he showed his asshole. No, he showed his ass. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, that's that, true. It shows you your asshole, especially if you're in prison. It means something completely different. Oh, gosh. Completely different. <laughs> completely different. Exit only. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, that's what I, that's the exit only. I, I, if I ever end up having to go to jail, so the first thing I'm going to do before I go in is have that, have those two words tattooed on my ass. Exit on the left, only on the right. <laughs> yeah. Every, every martial arts class I've ever taken <laughs> with the intake interview with the sensei, they always ask, you know, why are you here? You're looking to, you know, develop balance or, you know, for the exercise and the flexibility. And my stock answer is I just want to be able to take down the two largest guys on the cell block. <laughs> and they look at me like, are, are you, are you facing jail? Th no, I'm just saying, you know, let's say I look like the sketch. Yeah, I want to survive the two weeks while they sort it out. <laughs> so that's all I'm asking is because uh, that's I've had a friend whose son went to jail and oh. prison, actually. Oh. And he told me this is because we were talking about this. He goes, yeah, right, here's the deal. In, in, in jail or in prison, oftentimes you're going to have to fight. Yeah. Uh, if you don't, you're just, you know. You're just fresh meat. You're just somebody's bitch for the rest of the time you're there. Mm. Somebody's so girlfriend. you may lose, but it's better to yeah, it's better to fight and lose than it is not to fight. Yeah. Uh, and the guy came after his son one night, and they had this technique. I'd never heard of it, and I've read a lot of trashy fiction. <laughs> it's called it's called a lock in a sock. So he took his lock from his locker and he put it in a sock and tied a knot. Oh yeah. You know the open end of the sock, and he he lay there awake. And when the guy came in, he just opened up on him with a lock in the sock and put him in the hospital. Oh, wow. Ooh. And never saw him again. Yeah. Yeah. He said, it, but it was a matter of survival. You have to, you know, you're going to have to what fight. What was that movie? I'm what was that movie with the guy? Uh, he's Adam Sandler. John Penn? No, it was one of Adam Sandler's buddies. Um, he uh, he did Deuce Bigelow, Mel Gigolo. That guy. Who was that guy? Oh, yeah. Um. Yeah, Schneider. Rob Schneider. So he was he he was in uh, he did an old, a whole movie where he was an Israeli spy or something like that. I can't remember. Remember, he goes to prison. And the first thing he does, he finds the biggest 
horniest, most trashy person on the on the on the playground, basically, and whoops his ass. And that's so yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I can I, I, I can feel that. I can feel that. Shawshank Redemption. I, this is much different. Yep. Yeah, that's dark. Parts mm-hmm. of it are very dark. Yeah. Well, I have a friend who an acquaintance who went to went to jail as a very young man in his teens. Um and I think he killed an acquaintance in a in a certain sense accidentally, but still went to jail, went to went to juvenile jail and then went to prison. And he said same thing. You got to fight. And he said there was a guy who came in, a slightly built Japanese kid, and the two largest inmates come to approach him first day. And so the guy, the Japanese guy, drops into a martial arts stance, and then does a standing backflip, lands, and takes a stance again. And they just said, "No, I think." See, <laughs> I, I he, know he better than the reason. That. It's like people who. It's like big men that are afraid of chihuahuas. Right? Yeah, they can bite yeah. you. Yeah, they can put you know scratch the skin up, you know, bark at you, annoy you. But I can just reach down, and I'm a big man. I can reach down and grab the chihuahua by its neck, and it can't hurt me no more. So, well, here's the thing. <laughs> I said, why, why not? And he said, here's the thing, Frank. They probably could easily take him. I don't even know. He said if he knows any kind of martial art. He just but, knew how to do a backflip. <laughs> yeah, he may just have known how to do a backflip. But see, the two guys cannot take the chance that, in fact, he is Bruce Lee reincarnated. Oh, yeah. Because if they get their ass whipped by a little Japanese guy, they lose all their equity, their credibility in, on the cell which, block. Which goes to so that, what we were talking about earlier. I mean, this is really interesting because that goes to exactly what we were talking about earlier, why men don't talk about their feelings because it's exacerbated and it's amplified on the prison in the prison yard. Right. But that's exactly why men can't talk about their feelings because if they do, they'll pay bait. Yeah. Yeah, it's they. It's a male kind of a code that goes back, you know, uh, thousands of years probably. It's you know, it's um, got to be Billy you know, Badass. You, yeah, because if you wander in somebody else's territory when you're in the caveman days, you know, you were an enemy and they were, yeah, you then, know, either enslaved or killed. Or, then they take your yeah. women, they take your wives. Everybody, well, everybody do, getting taken on up in here. How do we change that? Uh-huh. I think it takes time. It just generation after generation, uh, slowly. You're but never going to really get rid of it, though, because women want a manly man, even though they say they want everybody to be this way and that way. Men need to be responsible. They need to be good listeners. They need to be empathetic, but they also need to be men because when dating, none of the women. I, I've never met a woman who didn't want to date me because I was too strong. They didn't want to date me because they knew it was going to get serious. They knew what I was looking for, but they never heard one say, oh, he's too strong. He's too manly because I'm also empathetic and I also listen and I pay attention and I'm, and I, and I'm, I'm a soft, gentle person when I want to be. Um, well, and, and I don't think there's a book called. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. There's a book, a book called a book called from years ago, uh, "Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus." Yeah. Uh, written by two psychotherapists, by the way, who had been married at one point and divorced, which is a whole different story. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's like being Should a shop teacher. Should we trust those people, though? 
I'm starting to yeah, try so not like to me. laugh because it's like you're divorced. I'm like, well, maybe you should have taken the advice <laughs> of your book and maybe. Yeah. Ah. yeah. <laughs> the joke, joke I wrote was it's like, it's like being a shop teacher with three fingers. You know how it all works. Yeah. She's not very good at it. <laughs> uh, but I said, you know, in the book, it said women want men, you know, um, who are empathetic, who are, you know, uh, and I said, okay, ladies, let me set this up for you. It's Monday morning. It's been snowing all night. It's icy. It's slushy. You go out of the car to drive to work. You're running late. You turn the key. Nothing. Now, when you go back inside, do you want your husband or male significant other to go either A, I feel your pain, or B, I'll get the jumper cables and get your pretty little fanny on the way in no time? Come on. Uh, yeah, I think one wants both. You know, somebody who is tough but tender. I mean, yeah. somebody who can, yeah. But you can't be too much of either one. You have no. to find that middle ground, but you still have to be a damn man. I think maybe that's why you're frustrated at me, because I'd be getting the jumble capers doing it myself, and you'd be like, why didn't you wake me up? <laughs> I've been okay with that. I just, that's oh, that's, that's hot. Yeah, <laughs> I know. See, that's what I've been trying to tell her. I'm just like, no. Yeah. Okay, my thought you know, process. You know how to work on cars? <laughs> I wish. I am not very good at that. My question is, is how can a woman who's either married or in a serious relationship with somebody, and you start to notice that your significant other husband is having issues that make you concerned for depression and suicide. What advice would you give her? Cause I don't know Flat about out. You. Ask him, are you depressed? Well, if you do that, is he going to say no? Ask him if he's depressed. Okay. Now, whether he responds, you know, whether he's willing to tell you or not, that's another story. But yeah, if you think somebody's depressed, ask him if they're depressed. Yeah. And if you can get him to admit they're depressed, again, looking for signs. Is he having trouble maintaining his hygiene? Is he having trouble getting out of bed? Is, you know, is he seem to be losing interest in being playing softball or whatever the, um, you know. It's, yeah. And then when I show him my tits, he no longer gets interested. I don't understand. <laughs> no? That's not a question? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's not a, no. That's not a question. I just wanted to show, show uh, your tits. That's yeah. All. And. <laughs> I if, think for me, yeah. I don't know very many women that would be like, okay, he's not depressed, and they just go about their day, and they wouldn't think anything other. For me, I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna trick him and put his ass in the car and take him to the doctor. But that's me because that's, well, that, that might get you in trouble too. If true, yeah. If he if he says he's depressed, the next step is, are you having thoughts of suicide? You ask it just that way. And if he said, if he's honest enough to say yes, then the next question is. Do you have a plan? And if he has a plan as detailed, time, place, and method, then you get him in the car. Yeah. And look, honey, I'm not going to get you locked down. I just want, let's just go there and get you evaluated mm -hmm. and find out what it is. Yeah. You know, because I had a friend in, in town here who was, he was terribly depressed. He went and got a physical. And the doc says, your body's not metabolizing iron. So he put him on a time-released iron supplement, and boom, depression symptoms are gone. So. Yeah. Sometimes physical ailments present as mental health challenges. So that's true. But yeah, I would say ask him, ask him flat out. I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing he's going to answer you honestly. But I think you need to ask the question because the last thing you want to do is not ask the questions. Have something happened. If your intuition says he's depressed, or your intuition says about your child, I think they're having thoughts of suicide. You have to ask him, are you having thoughts of suicide? The old wife's tale is it, you should never mention that in front of somebody who's depressed because they give them the idea. Like, that didn't fucking cross my mind. Yeah. And, <laughs> right. They already thought about that. I don't get that. It's like they're yeah, already and, there. 
Yeah, and the chances of them dying by suicide, if you ask that question out loud, are much less. Yeah. Because all of a sudden it's out in the open. Yeah. And, you know, you, it, yeah, they're not so alone. Because oftentimes people with mental illness, I fell into this when I first, you know, before I knew I had a diagnosis, I thought it was just me. I thought nobody else felt this way, thought this way. Yeah. Turns out there's, you know, a quarter of the population has a mental health exactly. challenge. So, that's yeah, true. so it's um So I appreciate I you talking yeah. to us today. I really do. And I really think it's something that people need to talk about more. I agree. And not have to and, and not sit around and wring their hands over. I mean, if you feel bad, you feel bad. And you know, talk to someone. At the very least, talk to someone. What was the number that you said people can text to? Yes, you you text the word help or connect or any word to seven four one seven four one. And there'll be somebody on the other end of the line. And, you know, they now have a nationwide in the U.S. three-digit suicide prevention lifeline. 988 is the nationwide three-digit suicide prevention lifeline. Okay. And you'll generally get somebody who's trained at least, right? Oh, and, yes. And we'll definitely and don't, listen. And they'd, yes, and they'd rather have you call as you're cycling down, not as you're standing on the ledge. Yeah. And... And also, the, uh, this is the 741-741-988. Oh, and, get, and make sure you put my phone number in the show notes because every keynote I do, I put my phone number up on the screen. Okay. And I say, look, I say, look, if you're suicidal, call 988 or text 741-741. If you're just having a really bad day, call a crazy person and here's my cell number. <laughs> I get those yeah, calls and, calm and people, quite often, actually. <laughs> Once a week or so, you know, because what here's here's the power of what I do. It's 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 something that men don't realize, and I think they get laid a whole lot off than if they did. It is that vulnerability is a superpower. Mm-hmm. It um, is. I'm successful. I'm funny. I'm not good looking, but I'm cute, and I'm also very vulnerable on stage. I get choked up when I tell my story, and that chokes the audience up. That's right. And when, when I go on stage, unlike a clinician for whom all this is academic, I stand up there and my vulnerability is I say, look, I am nuttier than a squirrel turd. <laughs> and, and it allows people in the audience permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences. People line up after I get like two, five, ten people. I say, look, I'll handle individual questions afterwards if you don't want to ask in Q&A. And sometimes it's two people, sometimes it's ten. And here's how the conversations almost always start. Frank, I've never told anybody this. Oh, I get that a lot. Wow. Because I've given them permission to do that without recrimination, no stigma, no right. judgment. Right, exactly. And and they know that they don't have to explain a lot of that to me. I get it. I hear the same music. I had a young woman at a college in Virginia say to me, she came up after, she, she said, can I give you a hug? And I'm thinking, oh, Christ. <laughs> um Everybody in, the, everybody in the room's got a phone with a video camera and a camera. And I'm on a college campus. I'm 65. She's 18. And I can just see the headline, the photograph in the paper tomorrow. You know, uh, speaker gropes co-ed. <laughs> so I said, what if the co-ed are you a hugger? She goes, not normal. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not normally a hugger. So I gave her one of those. I'm sure, I'm sure you've done this, Paul. I gave her one of those hugs where I moved my pelvis back as yeah. far as I possibly could. That's how I hug so Andrea's kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's daylight there's daylight between my my midsection and her midsection. Exactly. And I, 
I said to her, are you a hugger? She goes, no, I don't hug. I said, what was that all about? She goes, well, I have some mental challenges. I've been in therapy for about two years. And the woman who's my therapist is very good. She's got the diplomas on the wall. She knows her stuff. But, but you know what? No context. She goes, I'm back there at the back of the room listening to you 15 minutes into your little keynote. And this is a quote. And she said, and you're inside my fucking head. I've gotten more. I got more of that 45 minutes than I got out of two years with a therapist. Wow. That's the power of being vulnerable and yeah. starting that conversation. Yeah. And that's probably the that that's exactly what I learned whenever I was selling insurance is that I had to be the same as them. I had to put myself in the same plane of existence as they are. We're all trying to just make it in this world. And we're just trying to do our best and be the nicest person we can. But sometimes we got to look out for ourselves and blah, 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 blah. And it's exactly what I did. That's exactly the, the tact I had to take when I was selling insurance because I only had 10 minutes with these people. And Well, I sell, I sell TEDx talk coaching. Yeah. And my big competition, and it's good company, they get people TEDx talks, but they, they have a staff of salespeople. And one of, the, one of my clients had gone to them first because they run ads all the time on social media and had talked to the salesperson and you know, arranged a follow-up call. And at the follow-up call, my client, would have been their client said, I just, you know, I can't afford it. And, and the guy, the salesperson came after him, you know, yeah. what do you mean you can't afford it? And so they, when they're chatting with me, I said, look, I charge $5,997. I said, you, you know, you can pay me up front and save a grand or you can pay me uh, 500 bucks a month for a year, no interest. And they say, you know, I need to think about it. I go, I wouldn't just think about it, man. I would sleep on it. That's a big pile of money. Uh, Let me give you my cell number, you know, sleep on it. And, you know, call me back. If you decide to do it, great. If you you wake up tomorrow morning and go, what the fuck was I thinking? I don't (laughs) want to do it. I I don't care. Uh, You know, it's a lot of money. Yeah. And and the guy calls me back and he signed up. I think it's because, like you said, I – Got into his shoes. I'm five thousand, six thousand dollars, a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. Didn't pressure him. Didn't call him a pussy because he wouldn't do it. And <laughs> guess, who, guess who? He guess who he signed with? So yeah, yeah. I think people and you have a longer sales, relationship they, with that person than you will with anybody else too. They'll buy more from you later, yeah. and and though you you might become long, you know, might become lifelong friends until that one fateful yep. day when you fall off out of the the bed at the nursing home and hit your head on the <laughs> yeah, walker. So, well, my, my deal with my tennis coaching clients is, is this. I say, look, they go, how long is the program? I go, I call them out till death do us part program. We work on getting you a TEDx and your speaking career where you want it until we do or we both die trying. <laughs> That's and good. back to expression, Paul, I've had clients say to me at the end of the, it's just a discovery call, 30 minutes. They have to beg me to tell them what it costs. Yeah. Well, for God's sake, Frank, just tell me what it costs. Um, and I've had them say to me, no, I think I'll go with you. I, you know, I I can see in your eyes. Yeah, never never tell them this. the price up just, front because then it's, uh, you're done. Yeah. I don't know. No, I make them, make them, make them work for it. for it. That's right. I don't know. Empathy, compassion, just caring about people, I think sometimes goes a lot further than anything. What I found is that most people don't experience empathy and compassion. And they really don't. And it's weird. You think, you would think that it would be more of a thing. But for some 
ungod god no unknown reason most people have never experienced true compassion or true empathy or true caring even in their own personal relationships between the man and woman and i i don't understand that and i know you don't understand that and that's why we get along you know it's well, because we're just different think about folks. this think about this in the sales process my belief about business is something my mother i learned in my mother's knee I didn't know I was learning it, but I did. She was a big networker. People would call her day and night and say, Dixie, that was her name, Dixie. Dixie, I need this. And she would do her best if she could to, to deliver, you know, connect them with somebody yeah. who could, could. Okay. So that I believe that's the heart and soul of networking is giving value first without expectation of return. And giving value first is empathy. Yes. See what you can do for them before you figure out what they can do for you. Well, and this can help anyone in their relationships as well, because yeah. it's sales. It, it's sales isn't sales. It's just dealing with people. Well, they were buying you, Paul. They're buying me. Yeah. They're buying coaching. They were buying insurance. But what they're really buying is you or me. Right. And the, and the same thing that they're, it's the same thing when you're, when you, if you feel like, you know, you're depressed and whatnot, uh, it's probably because, you know, you need a little empathy in your life as or, well. Or to feel empathy from someone else. Or to even feel empathy for someone else. Well, and one of the things I recommend to people who are living with depression or a mental challenge is, is do something nice for someone else. Because A, it gets you out of your own head and your focus off yourself. Mm -hmm. And B, it's it, you're doing something good. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just one of those. It I makes think you it, feel it, better. Yes, it does. Uh, self, it can be a great piece of your self care plan is to do something nice every so often for somebody else, no, no, for nothing in return, just because you can do it. Yeah, exactly. I, and I love doing. I love doing that. I, I, I. Again, my mother taught me. Um, do you guys have time for one last story? Sure, sure. I know we're going to pass an hour, but. Um, I was on Woodby Island. I was taking a martial arts class and a woman in there named Elise. She came in Monday morning and she was crying. And I said, Elise, what's wrong? She goes, well, my husband is in Nepal. We're trying to adopt a little boy, three years old from Nepal. And I said, well, what's the rub? She said, well, one, uh, the visa to go to Nepal, very expensive. This is the last one we can afford. Two, a week from Sunday, I guess. So in seven days, he's going to have to fly home with or without the boy. And three, everybody signed off on the deal except the United States Homeland Security. And I said, uh, wait a minute. The kid's three. I mean, I've never had a three-year-old, but how big a terrorist can he be? I don't know. I mean, they're pretty ter <laughs> they yeah. can terrorize the shit Terrible out of you. twos is a real thing. And it doesn't end at two when you turn it's three. Like, yeah. Two to six. So, so her problem was we were in Washington State, very blue. And she was she was involved in politics. She knew both senators, you know, U.S. senators, but they were both Democrats, governor Democrat. This is during the George Bush administration. So everybody in Washington, D.C. would make a difference as a Republican. So when she got done, I, I think my mother channeled through me. I said exactly what my mother would say. I said, I'll see what I can do. Now, I realized after I spoke it, I'm like, fuck, did I say that out loud? <laughs> now you got to help. I, yeah, I'm a comedian on Whidbey Island, a half a world away, yeah. with no connections, and and I'm somehow. But I believe if you give voice to something like that, 
your brain and the universe begin to work together yes. to figure out, can't you? So I'm driving home and I thought, aha, there's a guy I went to junior high school with. And by the way, with networking, I think it's like a garden. You've got to tend it. You've got to stay in touch. You've got to take care of your people. There's a guy I went to junior high school with. When I went back to Raleigh to work in radio, he was mayor. We hung out. And he worked for a very powerful Republican senator from North Carolina for a number of years. So he knew lots and lots of high-ranking Republicans. And at the time, our governor for the state of Arkansas was the head of Homeland Security, uh, Mr. Asa, Asa, Asa Hutchinson. Hutchinson. Asa Hutchinson, yep. yep. So I said to Tom, I ran out of the story for him, and I said, um, and Tom said, bless his heart. He said to me, Frank, I'll see what I can do. Hmm, I sense a theme. So uh, Tom, called, that was Monday. Tom called me back on Wednesday. I said, Tom, how'd you do? He goes, well... I called Elizabeth Dole. She was a current senator from North Carolina. And I ran the story down for her. Now, Tom and I have nothing politically in common. We're on opposite ends of the political spectrum. Okay. But, you know, when it comes to this kind of thing, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's about the, it's about the people. So, Tom, I said, what did Elizabeth Dole say? She said that she had contacted Homeland Security. And what did what happened? Tom said, and I quote, Elizabeth Dole said, and I quote, I tore him a new asshole. <laughs> um, yeah, Three-year-old uh, child, uh, give him a damn passport. Yeah, a, a southern woman at heart. I tore him a new asshole. <laughs> so the word went out in a diplomatic patch, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, diplomatic pouch, yeah. to the ambassador to Nepal. And so Homeland Security checked off. Of course, I know none of this. I have no idea what's going on. So Monday morning, I'm in class, no Elise. Tuesday morning in class, no Elise. I'm thinking, fuck, it didn't work. Tuesday after class, I'm in the grocery store, pushing my little buggy. And around the corner comes Elise, holding the hand Aww. of a darling little three-year-old. Nice. Okay, now I'm crying. She's crying. His name is Avi. Avi looks me in the eye. Big brown eyes, looks me in the eye, and this is what he said. Avi, go pee-pee. <laughs> <laughs> and through my tears, I said, yes, and on American soul, I, uh, American soil, I do believe. So that's the power. I mean, how, if I never Just do another good thing in my life. One small how, phone how, call. Yeah, one small phone call, and I've changed the trajectory of at least three people. Suppose he goes on to be a doctor who creates a cure for whatever i mean you you know the ripple effect yeah who you knows? never know he, he could Butterfly effect kind he of could thing, become yeah. a bank robber and blow himself up but yeah. you know it could be a he might yeah, be the person that frees to bed hey now you're talking yeah. Yeah, somebody said to me the other day i was watching television the other day and a terrorist um i uh they asked him aren't you know what about you? Do really want to blow yourself up and kill yourself? And he said, "This you only die once." I'm thinking, <laughs> never done stand up comedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Oh, yeah, anyway, that's that's, <laughs> that, that's the vulnerability and 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 reaching out and asking for help. Yeah, uh, maybe not for you, but for somebody else. And and you know, listening, the, the power of those sorts of things. Yeah, and listening. Yeah, and man, <laughs> yeah, I'll see what I can do. Fuck, did I say that out loud? <laughs> um. But it's it's exactly what my mother was said. Regardless, even if she did, even if she had no idea how to do it, she yeah. said, "Let me see what I can do." Um, well, yeah, so it's anyway. That's all right. I mean, it's been a it's been a very much a joy to talk to you today. And, and oh yes, and I really think that I really feel. I hate that we said we think. No, I feel. I feel 
that you know it's something that more men than I think it is I think it's happening I mean the dreaded Jordan Peterson I know not everybody likes him politically but he's brought a lot of attention to men's studies um just because he's been out there with the facts just like you're out there with the facts it doesn't matter your politics the facts are the facts and that's really all there is to it and we're 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 slowly chipping away through TikTok and through uh through through Instagram and through Facebook stories these story things have been really instrumental in chipping away at the stigma of being an idiot if you're a man who has an emotion or if you're a man who is a man um so well and on that score Paul uh we when we, we set out to write a book on men's mental health and men told us if you're going to do that we want real men real stories and how they're really coping sort of a chicken soup for the soul style anthology okay and so we figured we'd be lucky to get 12 guys to come out and discuss what their struggles were and how they were coping because of, you know because we're figuring you know what man's going to do this well we ended up with 64 men. Wow. And wow. a book became four books. Nice. So here's the thing about men, and it's in the forward of the first book, is that it's hard to get a guy to go into therapy. Yeah. You probably have to back him into a corner. Look, honey, I love you, but I'm not going to put me and the kids through this. If you don't get help, we're out of here. He said, but once a man buys in, he's in, he's all in. Yeah. And... He's more than willing to help other men. It's come some kind of warrior's code. And, and so that's, you know, these guys all came forward and then they got some really serious, you know, drug and alcohol addiction, gambling addiction, yeah. uh, whatever. And, and we were amazed. But I think that's a sign that times may be a change. In yeah. I, and the, it's where, you know, where people like you and I, because I talk about this just individually, not so much, you know, publicly, because I really, I have an audience, but it's not a large audience like, you know, someone like yourself may have. Uh, maybe one of these days it will be large enough and my voice will be heard more often when it comes to something, when it comes to this subject. But I, everyone I talk to, I, I'm always like, be a man, but don't be an asshole. You know, yeah, that's, uh, the, two are, <laughs> the two are not inexplicably related. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. two different things. It's two different things, exactly. And you can be uh, 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 on the left wing, or you can be on the right wing and still be a man. You know, it doesn't matter. You can still be a man, and being a man is mostly about doing the right thing, having a, an even keel, and not fucking anybody in the ass with your bullshit opinion. Whenever they're down on their luck, that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I I would have put it a little more delicately. No, nah, yes. I didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, Sorry, my, I apologize. Most, most of my political co- most, no, that's right. Most, my, I'm kidding you. Most of my <laughs> political commentary doesn't involve anal sex. But, um, <laughs> well, you know that's kind of the thing they do in uh, Washington. You know, I mean, just throw. Oh man! Oh god! Yes, well, no loop. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I'm just you know speaking for truth. Yeah, no, it's uh, no, I know it's it's I, it's I weird everybody out, so you're good. 
nobody lives through yeah, one of my exactly. one, one of my one of my interviews without going, Oh my god, what's wrong with this man? <laughs> yeah, well we established that early. Yeah, um, we did. <laughs> yeah, we put that to bed right away. <laughs> but we well, really, I appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. And we look forward to to the success of your um of of your of your goal of helping people understand that suicide may seem like it's the answer, but in the long run, all you're doing is hurt. I mean, you're doing everything. It's actually everything wrong. Unfortunately. Well, here's the deal. Let's leave them on a high note. Yeah. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They cannot make up their mind. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last week. So that means your audience, and I love, and when I speak, I like to make the audience a hero. You can make a difference. You can save a life, and you can do it by doing yeah. something as simple as Paul and I and Andrew are doing right here, and that is starting a conversation. Yeah. And give us those numbers one more time, the ones you can text. Uh, text to 741741, the word help or connect, and then the new, brand new, three-digit suicide prevention lifeline, phone number 988. Right, and if and if they're really desperate, they can call you. Right, that's correct. Yeah, <laughs> and it happens. People call, people text. Yeah, can I, I'll leave you with a. I'll leave you with a funny. Okay. A kid called me one time, and he goes, "I can't believe this is your real cell number." I go, "Dude, how bad would the karma be if I said if you're having a bad day, call me, and I gave you a fake number?" <laughs> yeah, and I said, "I'll make I'll make it worse. Hold, please." And I said, I'll even go one step farther since I'm a comic. The on hold music is another one bites the dust. Oh, oh my God. Another one bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's any consolation, sometimes when we do CPR, it's staying alive is what we think in our head so we can get staying the right alive. tempo. Staying alive. <laughs> or another one bites the dust. Oh, by the way, the Nurse Hunt. Do what? N- nurse Andrew. Here's, here's how I feel about nurses because I've had two aortic valve replacements, double bypass, heart attack, three stents. Wow. So, wow. Um, Sounds like my dad. Yes. Yeah, it's, fami- it's, all, it's all familial. It's, I got the bad valve from my dad, bad cholesterol from my mom. Of course, I got a sense of humor from both of them. So it sort of balances out. But I wish that was true about me. My philosophy. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't see your name and balance in the same sentence. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Bull in a china shop, Andrea, man. My, That's me. Yes, Andrew. My my philosophy of, of healthcare as a patient is to be everybody's favorite patient. And here's why I believe that: because you know, you're a professional. You do a, you do a good job for anybody who comes to the door. However, if you and I make a connection emotionally, if you like me, and I'm She's in a not position let you where die. I need. <laughs> Exactly. Not on my fucking watch, you son of a bitch. You might push a little harder, break another rib, but bring me back. <laughs> there are some things I've said like, uh-uh, not today, not on my watch. Oh, hell no. <laughs> not on my watch. No, hell, hell no. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's that's my feeling about it. Because nurses, you know, doctors come in, they change your medication, they're there 90 seconds, they're gone. The nurses yeah. are around the clock. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I love having fun with the nurses, make them laugh, you know, because it's, it's a tough job. And uh, and I've made a goodly number. I've been protesting one time, and I thought everybody knew I was a comedian, and a woman been on vacation, she comes back. And it was time for the shift change, 11 o'clock, and I had had an angiogram. So I had an incision in my thigh where they put in the, you know, the uh, the probe. Yeah. 
And so the first thing they always ask is shift change is um, they want to take a look at the incision. I figure she knows who I am. <laughs> she comes to the door. She goes, Mr. King, I need to look at your groin. I go, what is it with you women? Everybody <laughs> through that door wants a shot. <laughs> wants to look at my groin. I feel like I feel like one of those strippers in that movie, Magic Mike. I said, okay, honey, you can take a look at it, but you better have a fist dollar bill. Oh, my <laughs> okay. God. She goes back up. Yeah. She does a good job, very professional. But she goes back out in the nurse's station because they told me the next morning. And she goes, okay, I give up. Who's the pervert in 23? <laughs> <laughs> she had no idea I was a comedian. Yeah. Oh, so anyway. yeah. That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah, I would have done that. Oh, I'm yeah. not a comedian. I probably would have laughed. It would have been, I don't make enough money to give you dollar bills. Let me look at your groin. <laughs> I, know, I would have yeah, looked at you and gone, yeah, 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 okay. You can do that. Oh, well, it's yeah, so no, nice. Nurses to, are. It's so nice to meet you and talk with you. And I think it's wonderful what you're doing. And it's definitely opened up my mind on the men's side of this issue that I really didn't know a whole lot about till now. So thank you very much for giving me your perspective. I appreciate it. Well, and you know what, Andrew? Uh, if you go to my website, the mental health comedian, the mental health comedian, I narrate. I'm narrating all the books, the men's mental health books. Nice. But I've already finished the first one. And if you put an email address in on my website, you can download the MP3 Bridge audio book. I narrate it for free. Oh, cool. okay. So, yep. Always free stuff's always good. So yeah, free stuff. yeah, free stuff is always good. That's right. I had a ball uh, narrating it, and um, it's. All right. It's I got a good audio editor. When I when I when I heard what he could do with my voice, I heard the first chapter. I go, "Fuck, I'm good." <laughs> but Paul, but Paul, you know, he's taking out the lip smacks and the pops and the breaths, and he's you know he's equal. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I don't do he that. Does a great I, job. I I literally there's one place where we're going to cut here because we had a little technical glitch. I generally I've just kind of sworn that we're just going to post the conversation. I'm not going to cut it out, you know, unless, yeah, unless there's a really valid reason, like it glitches and all you hear is, I'm not going to post that, but I just post it because how it's, it's about being honest and true and raw content. Yeah. Just yeah. being ourselves. Yeah. Being ourselves. Yeah. Cause I'm unless weird. Unless you, yeah, yeah, why belabor the obvious? Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, I'm gonna start yeah, taking and, that personally in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel your pain. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm with, I'm with you. Unless unless it's like deadly boring, I'll cut that out. But otherwise, let it run. Ah, you know, here's the thing: one man's trash is another man's treasure so who hell knows what people are listening to whether they like it or not and screw it i i mean afraid of nothing man let's just put it out there you're trying to make a difference that's the whole purpose of this podcast is we're trying to raise awareness on different issues and this one was something that's been very very important to him and it's very important to me because people i i i hate it when people think that the end of the world is nigh and I'm like, no, the sun will come up for another 400 billion years. And the earth isn't even going to crack open for another 200 years at minimum. Maybe 2,000 years. So why don't I have a good time while you're here, man? Well, and, you know, the podcast, somebody may be tuned in today who uh, we may save a life just by That's the true. information we gave out. I agree with that. 
And my goal is to save a life a day. So if we did that today, then that's a good day's well, work. I, and, and I always, you know, I my entire life, that's what I do. I talk to strangers. If I see somebody who's sad, and I do, and I do this, and I've done this, and consciously done it, and it's part of the reason why I, I, I am the way I am. If I saw somebody that was sad or looked sad or gave me that micro expression of I just want to die, um, I engaged with them. And it did my damnedest to make them start smiling at least at least a flash of a smile in a micro expression. And that's that was my goal, because you never know when that little interaction helps that other person not feel like a total piece of shit when they go home. Well, and if you're for your listeners or for you, if you look up the story of Kevin Hines, he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he said he was he was hearing voices, and they told him to kill himself. And he thought, "Well, I'm in the Bay Area. How, how do you kill yourself in the Bay Area?" And so he went on Google, and of course, there's a website, "How to Kill Yourself in the Bay Area." Nice. And they said bridges, and so he got on a bus, and he said to himself, "Look, if anybody on the bus asks me how I'm doing, I'm going to spill my guts. Say I'm suicidal. Please call the police. I need to be taken into custody." Nobody. Yeah. So he goes on the bridge. He says, somebody on the bridge stops me and realizes I'm struggling and says, is something wrong? I'll, same thing. I'll have him call the police and take me in, and I'm about to hurt myself. So he's standing there looking over the side of the bridge. Somebody taps him on the shoulder. He's thinking, oh, thank God. And it was a tourist, and they said, would you take our picture? Oh, Oh, gosh. And he goes, sure. So he takes their picture. No sooner had they turned away than he jumps. Oh, wow. like most people... Yeah, like most people, I guess pretty much everybody who jumps who survives, as soon as you let go of the railing, you thought, oh, this is not a good idea. <laughs> That's usually the way it goes. Yeah, so he hits the water. It hurt his back, but he survives. He yeah. goes down, he comes back up, he's, he's treading water, and he feels something large and aquatic bump his leg. And he thinks to himself, a shark? Mm-hmm. The website didn't say anything about fucking sharks. I survived <laughs> the drop off the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm going to get eaten by a shark. Damn it! <laughs> well, it was a it was a sea lion. Sea lion. Yeah. Um, they probably but if some, they want to save you. The if sea somebody, lions. anybody, yeah, oh yeah, they if anybody in that entire journey over at him and said, "Hey man, you okay?" Yeah, that would have been all it took. Just that simple question. That's exactly why I do it. But you know, yeah. But see, you're you're wired that way. But yeah, you know, I've lived in California. The, the I lived in LA for a while. So high. I lived in a Huntington well, then you know Beach. the freak. Yeah. You know, the fr- the freak factor in L.A. is so high that people oh really God. don't want to make eye contact because they're afraid if they open the conversation. You never know who's going to go off on going? you next. That's great. I was there in the 90s yeah. right after Rodney King. And I was like, wow, this person's crazy. The guy, I'm standing out in front. I was collecting signatures in front of a Kroger, I think it is, for they're trying to put weed on the ballot. Uh, this is in the 90s, like 90. 293 and I'm collecting these signatures yeah. and this dude runs out of the Kroger or IGA whatever the hell it was I mean I was a young man I could barely I was barely old enough to drink he runs out yelling at him you're a bunch of racists this and that and the other and I'm like okay interesting and he goes across the street and sets a mechanic shop on fire that had nothing to do with whatever was going on inside of Kroger and I'm like, what the Whoa. what the hell is going on, man? It turns out they wouldn't sell him beer because he didn't have his driver's license. 
Oh. <laughs> so you go set a mechanic shop on fire? That Across way, the street, that has nothing to do with anything. That way you could just go to jail and still not get beer? Yeah, exactly. Well, you probably get more beer in, in the L.A. County jail than you can outside. Probably. Well, here, here's a, a, story to ta- a story to tag that about paying attention, because that's what comedians just get paid to pay attention. Yes, we just do. to observe things. Yeah. People who are funny and do pay so, attention. That's right. Yeah, so I'm in, a, I'm in the 76 station. It's on my way. I'm driving up to Portland to the airport. So I'm going to get a cup of coffee. So it's like 3 in the morning. I got, I'm making my cup of coffee. This guy comes in, and he and he said something about just getting out of jail hey. and trying to buy cigarettes. And, the, and in Oregon, you can't buy cigarettes unless you can prove you're over 18. Uh-huh. And and so he's he's now he's mad because he can't buy the cigarettes. Right. And and he screams at the clerk, "You got to sell me those cigarettes! I know the law." Yeah. And I'm thinking, you just got you just got out of prison. You don't know it that well. <laughs> exactly. And, <laughs> and then he decides he's not going to get the cigarettes, so he goes to the door. He opens it. He yells at the clerk. And this is that empathy thing. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm in pain because the clerk is in pain. And so he yells at the clerk, I'm never fucking coming in here again. And it walks out the door and slams it. So I lock eyes with the clerk and I go, do you think we could get that in writing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I'm promise saying, what, what's happening there is promise I, to keep that <laughs> promise, yeah, please. And, and here's the, here's the power of empathy. When I said that the clerk knows that I know how they're feeling. I took note of it yeah. and I, I wanted to help ease their pain. That's the power of empathy. And if, it, it works for me. Yeah. As human I, beings. Amazing. Yeah. Go ahead. If I'm in line to the, um, at the counter to check out a rent a car and the guy in front of me is screaming at the clerk. Um, and I've gotten more upgrades this way. <laughs> the screen, scream, 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 scream. Then he stomps off. So I walk up and they say, the driver's license, credit card, you know, do you have a reservation? Yes. And I wait a couple of seconds. I go, listen, I just have one question. Uh, at what point during this transaction am I allowed to yell at you? <laughs> <laughs> and they just light up and I get the upgrade. Uh, because I, it's an empathetic statement. Yeah. I just saw what happened. I took note of it. I know it was wrong. Yeah. Let's just share a little funny, you know, funny moment. Yeah. And that's, that, you know, that's kind of the key to life, too. It really is. If you if if you're somebody who's in pain, like most comedians and most creatives, we actually are in, in emotional pain a lot. We just live with it and go on, and try to have the best thing we can do. Um, you know, we know these things, and that's why we're goofy, and that's why we have a good time, and that's why we don't really care because it doesn't matter, man. So again, if you're having issues, if you think you need yep. to talk to somebody, please reach out to anyone and make sure that you're you're safe and remember tomorrow's another day which will be a happy day guaranteed well and another one and remember this chance you may feel like the world would be better off without you but chances are no that is not the case it's exactly opposite unless of course you're hitler or stalin then okay we can see that Oh gosh! Oh yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like I talked. It's like I talked to a guy one time, and he was gonna kill himself by stepping in front of a train. I said, "Look, don't. I don't I'm not gonna tell you not to kill yourself. I'm gonna tell you not to do it that way, yeah. because if you step on the tracks, you're gonna lock eyes with the engineer. You're gonna kill yourself and ruin their life." Yeah. Now, by the same token, 
if you if you want to take someone with you, for God's sake, strap on the explosive vest, find some raging asshole, wrap your arms around it, and hit the button. <laughs> and do the wrong thing. <laughs> Remember, there's a difference between ass and asshole. Asshole, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I'm just an ass. I'm not actually an asshole. Please don't push the button. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I guess uh, next time, I'm working on our next guest for our next podcast. Um, and I'm thinking, hopefully, we'll get somebody really cool that talks about, oh, I don't know, maybe some poltergeists. Or something similar. Crescent Hotel, Eureka Springs. I gotta get a hold of that dude and get him on here. He'll do it. He just doesn't want to speak for the Crescent, which is fine. But he can just tell me his general stories. Oh, I've had experience there, so I can talk about that story. So, <sighs> anyway, I appreciate you well, guys listening, and, guys, and thank you, Frank, very much. Yes, thank you. And you guys know September is uh, there's a week in September that is national. I'm sorry, International Suicide Prevention Week, and September 16th is International Suicide Prevention Day. Nice. So I'm not sure when this will air, but uh, you know, Next I need to have a lot of. Oh, good, perfect in September. Excellent. First yeah. of September. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. Sweet. Perfect. <laughs> so. Perfect. Yep. And we appreciate it. And if you need anything else or you want to have us on something to talk about whatever and you want to just like uh, make the audience completely appalled, I'm at your service. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, guys. And we'll talk to you again. This uh, my name's Paul and you are Andrea. Andrea. Yes. And uh, maybe we should have Stephanie on talking about witchcraft again. Okay. I don't know. I try to get Donald to do it, but he's I got some questions for her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look up, look up, Karen Rontowski. Karen Rontowski. R O N T O W S K I. She's a comic, but she's big into the supernatural, ghosts. Um, she had a show for a while on the supernatural. Nice. So nice, nice. And she's very funny. Absolutely. Well, and we'll talk to you again. And uh, if you have any questions or you want to know anything, email me at paulg at paulgnewton.com. That's paulg at paulgnewton.com. Or you can t- uh, you can call our guest and he'll let me know. No? Is that not, that's not what he said to do with this phone number? No, 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 no. Okay, yeah. don't do that. Don't do that. You can just email me, send me a message through Facebook or, you know, whatever, face crook, as I like to call it. And uh, we'll, if you have a topic that you want to know about, let us know. And we will definitely get on top of that because I want to know stuff. I want to know what you want to know to see if I want to know what you want to know. And if I want to know what you want to know, then I want to know. Right? Something like that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, diagram that soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.